Oh, the 80s was a good decade, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we had to show the movie to our staff because they had no clue what we were talking about. I, 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 I'm an old man, people. I didn't realize that. Let me say welcome to everybody who's here at First Christian Church, uh, whether you're joining us online, uh, we, if you traveled for vacation this year, want to make sure that you uh, join us on Sunday mornings on Facebook. We have a, a live feed that goes out, and so people are watching even this morning as we joined, and I uh, want to welcome our people and friends in Urbana. Hey, it's a great day to be here, and I wonder if you're like me, that maybe uh, TV or books or movies, they kind of take you to a different place. And sometimes maybe you're hanging out in your office or with your friends or, you know, just goofing off with some people and somebody, somebody quotes a line of, a, of, of maybe a song or a book or a movie and all of a sudden you, you finish that sentence, right? And all of a sudden you two look at each other and while you've never had anything in common at that point, the universe aligns and you become best friends, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, The Breakfast Club is kind of that for, for me and for my generation, that it's a movie that really kind of marked us in different ways. And if you watch movies, uh, you'll find out that, especially um, movies that try and capture a generation, that there's, a, there's kind of a couple things that happen in those. One, you find out that, that maybe we aren't so different, right? It was kind of the theme that not, we're not all that different. We're unique in different ways, but we're not all that different. And then second of all, it reminded us that often, deep down inside, when you looked at all of us, we're all a little bit bizarre and crazy, right? And it's so good to, to be able to think about that, especially as we look at it through the lens of, of Scripture, because that's really much of what gets pointed out in the characters throughout Scripture. There's not that much drastically different between many of them, and some of them are a whole lot a bit crazy. They're bizarre. But they have this, this same theme woven in their lives of faith and chasing after God. Wins and losses, but God's faithfulness in the midst of all of it. If you've got your, your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 37 today. And we're going to look at uh, a man by the name of Joseph. Now some of you are saying, well, who, what character are we thinking about in the Breakfast Club? Well, in the Breakfast Club, the brain is Brian Johnson. You remember him? He's the kid least likely to be in detention, but for whatever reason, uh, he's there, right? He's the one that every time the vice principal comes in, he calls him sir. Uh, they start to talk about the clubs that they hang out with, and he lists every variation of math club. Uh, the, the, they, they, they get after him for having a, a fake ID, and they say, what do you need a fake ID for? And he says, to vote. Right, right, to vote. Yeah, that's what every high school kids trying to get a fake ID for, right? And so you begin this story of the breakfast club with a, a kid who's the brain who ultimately ends up trying to craft a letter to kind of somehow identify who they are and what makes them so radically different and what makes them so much the same. And so today we want to look at the life of Joseph. And Joseph is really a, a very interesting character throughout Scripture, you find in, uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 37 that uh, Joseph has a very unique gift. And that gift is this. Joseph dreams. Joseph has the ability to dream and it, it, God speaks to him in some of those ways and he begins to think about the life that he's a part of. Now here's what's interesting about Joseph. Joseph is the youngest of 11 brothers. Okay? He has 10 brothers that are born... Um, uh, from uh, an older sister named uh, 
Rachel. His mom is Leah. Her older sister's name is Rachel. And, and of the 10, most of them come from Rachel, but one of them come from a maidservant. And Jacob has these children, and Jacob's been the one who's promised that he's going to be able to, to he's promised to be the, the nation of Israel. And what we find in this process, we find out in this journey and in this story, is that Joseph, being the youngest, should be the one that's treated like a runt. He should be the one that's kind of uh, pushed to the side, left out of all the kickball games. He's the baby of the family. And in his day, and his generation, that's the way it is. Now, I know in the States here, we tend to, the baby tends to get elevated, right? It's the last one, you know, and so above and beyond goes for that, the last, the baby of the family. But in, in, in Joseph's day, if you were the run of the family, if you were the last, you got the last scraps, you got the last chance to play ball, you got the last chance, you got the last of everything. But his dad loved him dearly. Now, many of you may know the story of Joseph in some variation because uh, in this bizarre, dysfunctional family, uh, his dad decides to create for him a, a coat of many colors, right? If you're a Broadway fan, Technicolor, you know, right? There's this idea that he gives him a, a robe that's special, that uh, sets him apart from the other children. There begins to be this favoritism that's seen. And of course, jealousy begins to brew in the family and uh, his older brothers decide to, to handle this their own way, right? One night, uh, Joseph has an incredible dream. And he could be kind of brash when he began to explain the dreams that he had. But he begins to tell his brothers about how all of them are gonna be uh, ones who eventually become people who will bow down before him. Now, I'm the oldest in my family, okay? And I've got a sister, so I, I never had this experience, but I can tell you as the oldest in the family, if I had brothers that ever said anything as heretical as that, I would correct them, right? You know what I'm saying? And so he's got 10 older brothers that he hears this statement from. He's got all these brothers speaking into his life, uh, 11 older brothers speaking into his life, and he's beginning to say, you know what, there's going to be a day that you are going to bow before me. And they're like, that's it. This kid's head's too big. I can't stand him in the family. We need to figure something out. And so they throw this into this deep pit, this cistern. And they're deciding that when they throw him in the pit, that they're going to sell him into slavery. Isn't this a little bit of an extreme lesson to teach a younger brother? But that's what they do. And they go back to tell dad, hey, a, a ferocious animal has devoured your favorite. And they bring back this robe that's covered in, in blood and torn. And they, they begin to devise this plan. And it plays out. Genesis 37, verse 19, they say this. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal has devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. I mean, basically they say, well, if you think that's the dream that God's going to give you, if you think, let's see what's going to happen. We will, we will challenge this. In the midst, they go back and they tell a father that their, his favorite son is gone. In the midst of it, they, they concoct and they fake this remorse over a brother that's lost. And you begin to realize that Joseph's life goes from being favorite to just being forgotten. But Joseph is different. Joseph doesn't just have faith in faith. 
Rather, he has faith in God. See, there's a monumental difference in our life in just having faith. It's simple. It's a statement we throw out there. I've got faith. But what Joseph is living out is his faith in God, trusting that God is at work in every circumstance, in every situation, and even in every relationship in his life. Here's the big idea about Joseph's life that we need to learn today. is that Joseph's perspective of life was rooted in God, not in his circumstances. We need to hear that again, don't we? Joseph's perspective of life was rooted in God, not in his circumstances. I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to think about the days of struggle that you've gone through. I want you to think about the hardships that may be pressing against your life. I want, to think about, I want you to think about the things that are beginning to wear on you, to exhaust you, to begin to wear you out. And I want to ask you, where is your perspective? Is your perspective trusting in God and what God may be able to do? Or is your perspective leaning into your circumstances? And so the situations and scenarios that are playing out in your life, those voices seem so much more loud than anything else. And Joseph's life, Joseph life was much different than that. I mean, if there are any circumstances that would compel you to give up your faith, uh, to abandon your people, uh, to withhold love from your family, it would be something like this, right? Where older siblings take advantage, leave you for dead. You would seem to want to give up on life. Some of us have lived this in some way or another. Maybe we've even, even allowed our own circumstances. Maybe, maybe we don't have older siblings that have thrown us into a cistern and left us for dead, but we have circumstances of broken relationships. We have circumstances of surroundings that have destroyed our hope and our faith. We have circumstances right now that are beating us down. And we can choose to, to become bitter and angry, we can choose to become grateful and loving. To allow God to use those circumstances to grow us into his likeness. The story continues on after Joseph gets uh, sold into slavery. And he actually comes to a, a point in his life where he gets some very bizarre circumstances. And all of this happens when, when Joseph is in Potiphar's house. The next story that begins to play out about Joseph's life is he gets taken into Egypt. He's, a, he's part of a deal that winds up under the rule of this man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar, probably not a top 10 name you wanted to name your child, but Potiphar, that's his name, right? And Potiphar is the number two in all of Egypt, and he's really kind of a big deal. But what happens is this, Joseph gets pulled out of this system of slavery and actually gets put in charge of overseeing all of, all of Potiphar's property and land and house and workers, Clearly throughout all of the garbage that's happening in Joseph's life, Joseph apparently makes some sort of tangible choice to still exercise his faith, his faith in God. I mean, there's no way that a guy gets miles and miles away from his family, gets thrown into such an atrocious situation, and then begins to see success show up in the midst of his struggle. He begins to climb the corporate ladder and literally, literally, Potiphar pulls him out and recognizes his success and says, hey, I need you to oversee everything in my house, including my wife. Now, that would seem to be quite an honor. 
Somebody would entrust a, a family, uh, trust a home, trust all the belongings, trust all the workers. But unfortunately, there's, there's dysfunction in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife gets the hots for Joseph. I mean, if you read scripture, you begin to realize that she gets very attracted to him to the point that she is aroused sexually and is inviting him to bed with her. Okay? Not a scenario you want to be in with your boss, correct? Right? It's a bad situation. And so Joseph has an opportunity to make some sort of choice. He can, he can figure out what he's going to do, how he's going to play this out, what he wants to do. But what he does is when she goes after him, literally she grabs him by his cloak and removes it from him and he runs away from her and he begins to be accused, making sport of her, putting it lightly. There's great shame in Potiphar's life. There's great shame in Potiphar's home. And Joseph, Joseph begins to be falsely accused. Here's what's interesting, though. And Joseph's life, Joseph's perspective of life was rooted on God, not in his circumstances. I mean, Joseph can't catch a break, can he? At this point, we'd be, be shouting something like, dude, just, why don't you just consider putting this, this God-honoring thing off to the side? Let's, let's quit trying to make so many wise decisions. Why don't you just try and cut a few corners? Why don't you, why don't you just lay low for a while? But this verse stands out to me. Verse 21 out of chapter 39, it says this. Listen to this. But the Lord was with Joseph. Can you underline that? But the Lord was with Joseph. It's a phrase that gets repeated in the following chapters as, as he goes through his struggle. But the Lord was with Joseph. Do you think that way when life gets tough? The Lord showed his, him his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph shuns Potiphar's wife. He's falsely accused. He's thrown into prison, and yet his perspective is the reminder that God is with him. Would we live differently if in every relationship, in every circumstance, in every surrounding, our foremost thought was this? God is with me. How would we act? What would we decide? How would we treat people? I can tell you one thing. We would probably be a lot more consistent in who we are. Right? That who we are in public and who we are in private, the gap would be very thin. Because we know that God is with us. Twice Joseph's garment is used as a ploy to ruin his life, and twice God shows favor into Joseph's life. He honors Joseph's God-honoring decisions, and Joseph goes on to succeed even again. But here's the first smart choice. The brain decision that we see out of Joseph, the first lesson that we learn is this. Integrity matters. Integrity matters. I don't know if you look around much, but sometimes it feels like in this world that integrity is forgotten, right? Broken promises, 
hurling accusations, broken relationships, bad choices. It seems like more and more in the world we live in that integrity is just simply forgotten. And what's incredible is that Joseph's integrity is more than a fleeting moment. Integrity takes years to gain, but only seconds to lose. It would have been easy for Joseph to justify his affair. Nobody will know. He's in charge. I mean, she's lonely. I mean, she's my boss's wife. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that he could have begun to embrace this moment. And for the sake of his success, for the sake of his popularity, for the sake of his influence, his job, whatever you want to say, for whatever it was, he chose to honor God above all else. And what happens is Joseph, coming up out of this prison, begins to interpret dreams. Not only does he have dreams, but he begins to interpret dreams. And remember, Joseph is living with this understanding that God is with him. He has a perspective that everything that he's a part of, every circumstance that he's involved in. And here's a man who is in prison that still sees his life, still sees his mission going forward. While he's in prison, he becomes this dream reader. And specifically, he becomes a dream reader for two people, the cupbearer and the baker. Two people who were deeply entrusted to the Pharaoh himself. The cupbearer would drink the drink first to make sure it was safe. And the baker was entrusted to always make something that was safe and honorable to the Pharaoh. But they have these two dreams. They have these two dreams and uh, uh, the the, the cupbearer, he gets told good news. The cupbearer gets told, you know what? Uh, Your dream is telling you that you're going to get your job back. For the baker, it's bad news. He says, not only are you going to uh, not get your job back, you're going to lose your head. Literally. Imagine that being, no, I think I was just eating ice cream. I don't, I don't think I dreamed that at all. That's not what I, right? right? Yeah, you're going to lose your job and you're going to lose your head. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh has a dream. He has a couple different dreams. And after uh, hearing of Joseph's ability to interpret these dreams, they actually come to him and they say, hey, can we explain these real quick? Pharaoh has two dreams. One is of uh, seven fat cows eaten by seven skinny cows. The other is of seven stalks of grain consumed by seven thin stalks of grain. And Joseph gets called out of the bullpen, right? Bring in the lefty. Let's see what he can do with this. This seems to be Joseph's chance. It seems to be his, his opportunity to grab the mantle of leadership, responsibility, freedom, whatever it may be. There seems to be a very quick path that if he maybe would, would tickle the Pharaoh's ears, if he would tell him what he wants to hear, if he could say something kind, that maybe all of this favor and all this circumstance would continue to press him to the top. But Joseph's perspective was not about his own success. Joseph's perspective of life was rooted in God, not in his circumstances. Genesis 41, verse 16 says this. It says, I can do it, Joseph replied. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Why is that important? Very quickly, we begin to recognize what Joseph's perspective looks like, even when the chips are down. Even though he's got two strikes against him and this third one could really end his life, he has a different perspective. 
his integrity, his decision to follow God leads him to a point where we recognize this truth, this lesson. Always give God the glory. That's what Joseph is trying to say. It's not my, my gift. It's my, not my talent. It's not my name. It's not my family. It's not the amount of money in my wallet, the name on the back of my jersey. I mean, it's nothing about me. It is everything about what God is doing here. I'm just, I'm just being obedient. God gets the glory in Joseph's life. And he interprets these dreams. And here's what they are. They're a dream that says there are going to be seven good years in the land. They're going to be bountiful. They're going to be wonderful. But they're going to be followed by seven years of famine. Because Joseph is willing to do and to be who God has created him to be and to simply answer the questions that are going on, Pharaoh literally says, then what do we do? How do we handle this? And Pharaoh allows Joseph to begin to speak into this situation. Pharaoh lends an ear to come up with a strategy and a plan on how they might begin to happen this. And he appoints Joseph. Look what it says in verses 39 and 40 of chapter 41. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and over all of my people. So let's backtrack a little bit. Joseph's the favorite in his own household. He gets thrown into slavery. He becomes the second in charge in Potiphar's house. He gets accused and thrown into prison by Potiphar's wife. He comes to now Pharaoh himself, and he gets appointed not the favorite of his home, not to oversee the second in charge's home and everything in it, but now he is the second in charge of the entire land. Joseph is over all of Egypt. Now, this would be a great place for, for Joseph's story to end. You would think, this is where you start the credits. This is where, you know, the music begins to swell. And, and Joseph is now back at the highest point of his life. He's having everything come together. But remember the dreams of Joseph's life? Remember the things that, that, that had been laid out to him as a child? What's interesting is this famine begins to hit. And it begins to hit all of the land. It even stretches as far to reach to Jacob, Joseph's dad, his friends, his family. All of them are beginning to struggle in this famine. And so Jacob sends his sons to the Pharaoh to give gifts, to pay homage, to buy food, to find some sort of way with all the food that Egypt has stored up, how they might be able to feed their families. It's interesting, as you begin to read uh, through, through these next few verses, you begin to realize that Joseph's brothers all load up and they come to Egypt. And as they come in, guess who they come face to face with? Joseph, the second in charge of all the land. 
They provide their gifts. They ask for their, for their wheat, their food, their grain. They're, they're, they're making all those things, but they don't recognize Joseph. I mean, he was just a kid. Out of sight, out of mind, right? But Joseph remembers. You don't forget faces of family that injure you, right? You don't forget the circumstances that impress hurt and wounds onto your life. And this seems to be a great counterintuitive moment where Joseph is going to lay the hammer down, right? No, he doesn't. Because Joseph's perspective of life was rooted in God, not in his circumstances. Genesis 42, verse 6 says this. Now, Joseph, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Did you catch that? They bowed down with their faces to the ground. Remember what they said? Let's see what comes of his dreams. Right? Twine up the story quickly. Uh, what begins to happen next is that he devises a plan to get all of his family into Egypt. He calls his brothers spies, even though they're not. He has them go home and come back with their family, including the younger brothers that they claim exist. He sends them all home, minus uh, Simeon, and sneaks all of the money back into their bags. They get home, and their father is furious. He's even embarrassed for what's just played out. All of them return to Egypt with the things right, to make things right with Egypt, to make it right with Pharaoh and the second person in charge. Joseph invites them to a per, his personal home. His brothers get pretty nervous. And he sends them back again. And this time he hides his cup in their bag. His repayment plan? Now, why do you think Joseph wanted everybody back? Why do you think Joseph would invite his family to all return to Egypt for vengeance, for a chance to humiliate them even greater? And what would you think happens decades later when Father Jacob dies? When the dad is removed? Would Joseph be the kind of person that would lose all this grace and all this compassion with his dad being gone? His brothers begin to realize what's happening and they, they sense their doom. They sense their demise. But Joseph, Joseph's perspective of life was rooted in God, not his circumstances. Listen to what it says in verse 19 of Genesis 50. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you. I will provide for your children. And he reassured them. 
and he spoke kindly to them. Why? Because Joseph's perspective of life was on God and not on his circumstances. So let's move to a let's move to a time of response. What I love about that last verse that we read are there are three very special words that get spoken. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Three very important words that when you open the New Testament, the Gospels, the story of Jesus, do you know what the angel says when the Messiah is about to come? Do not be afraid. One of the most known commands throughout all the New Testament is do not be afraid. Isn't that interesting? Joseph ends up being a, a great picture of Jesus. That the circumstances of life, the fear that invades your heart and your mind, the things that boil up around you that seem to hold you in his shackles, don't be afraid. And Joseph says, I, I will provide. And many lives will be saved. Jesus says, I forgive. And he gave his life so that many lives might be saved. The portrait of Joseph is not just how to figure out how to get through the hard times of life. The portrait of Joseph is to remind us that no matter the circumstances of our life, God is with us and God is for us. That God is making a way. So maybe today you, you sit in shackles of the circumstances of your life. Fear has become your favorite expression. You don't like to admit that, but you know you're frozen in time. You seem to be stuck at life. And, and fear has captured you. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I have come that you may have life. And life abundant and full. Today we're going to pause in just a moment and you're going to have a chance to respond by coming to the front and taking some time to pray, to surrender your heart. Maybe there's, maybe there's something in your life today that you're saying, God, you know my fears, here they are. Some of us will go to these tables, they remind us of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus' body was broken, that his blood was shed, and so we'll take the bread that reminds us of that broken body, we'll take the juice that reminds us of his shed blood, and we'll eat it, we'll drink it. And as we do, we'll be reminded that Jesus has provided his life so that many would be saved. Out of the gratitude of our hearts, out of the surrender of all that we have, we'll go to these response boxes. Some of us will give of our tithes. Some of us will give of our offerings. Some of us will fill out a connection card today. Maybe there's a decision that you need to make. Maybe there's a discussion about who Jesus is. Maybe there's the discussion about surrendering in baptism of our own life to glorify God. But whatever it may be, in these next few moments, the band is going to begin to sing. We're going to begin to stand and sing with them. And then people will spontaneously begin to go to the stations that they want to respond to today. Maybe prayer, maybe communion, maybe to offering, maybe to all three. 
but may our perspectives, may the circumstances of our lives, may they bend their knee to the reminder that God is with us and God is for us. Let's stand and let me pray to set up this time. Can we do that? God, we give ourselves to you. We openly extend our hands. We say, God, this this is our life. We hand it over to you. God, there are times in our lives when we've been falsely accused, when we've, we've endured hardship, when circumstances have gone different ways, when we've made poor choices. God, we see all these things that continue to pile and pile and pile up. And, and frankly, God, they shout into our life, stay back, hide. This is not for you. God, may you silent the circumstance of our lives. And in the quiet of this moment, would we hear your still small voice? Would we hear and know that you are our God? God, give us the faith to trust that you are with us no matter the circumstances or surroundings that we're a part of. And may we, by the faith of your Son, be found obedient and faithful whatever you call us to. God, we love you. It's in your son's holy and precious name we pray.